0: If you have your Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew 1, we're going to read verses 18 through 25 this morning. That's our text of study. You may already know Matthew and Luke are the only two gospel writers who give us uh, narrative information about the birth of Christ. Uh, Luke records the birth of Jesus, you might say, from the angle of Mary's perspective whereas Matthew records from the perspective of Joseph. Matthew is writing to a a largely Jewish audience, which is why he wants to show that the line of Jesus comes from the line of King David. We don't know when or how it happened along the way, but Joseph told his story. He told his account from his perspective, and that's what we're going to read this morning, beginning at verse 18. Remember that this is God's Word. he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, your people arrive to worship and sing your praises, but we are at some deep level uh, needy, longing to be fed and nourished by the food of the of your word, by the bread which is life. We pray now that as we study your word, that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to your people, that you would quiet and humble us beneath your word. And now we pray again that you would use a, a sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. She seemed to be dying to ask the question, She was clearly uncertain how she was going to phrase it and maybe also get the sale that day. But pretty soon, her amazement and her curiosity got the better of her, and so she came right out and asked Susan and me the the question that was burning in her mind. Wait, are y'all like Mormons or something? (laughs) No? What makes you say that? Well, all them kids... Are they yours? Susan and I looked at each other and we laughed. We're shopping for a piece of furniture in rural North Alabama. I think the clerk was working the store and she was suddenly overwhelmed when our herd came in. Four kids. She said, that looks hard. And so I answered her in the way that I've often answered that question once we laughed our way through it. I said, you know, it's actually harder, I think, to go from zero to one than it is to go from one to two or two to three or three to four. See, it's that, it's that first lesson of having to, to die to yourself and having learned to give yourself away for another little tiny life that needs you. And then, of course, she knew I wasn't Mormon, she said, are you a preacher? <laughs> See, all of us are by nature selfish. Can't help but wonder if Mary and Joseph recognize this same thing because it's not just that they have to make physical room for the baby. It's not just that they're going to be surprised by the way that this child is conceived. It's, it's not even the angel pronouncements or the stable birth room or that manger cradle, Mary and Joseph are going to have to make room in their hearts for Jesus because they had plans. They had already set things in order, and unlike their child, this is going to sound sacrilegious, these are ordinary, selfish, sinful human beings. So to make room, the adjustment is personal. Which reminds us, of course, that the arrival of Christ is personal for you as well. Which is why that song which we sing at the beginning of Advent, Joy to the World, the Lord is come, that second line says, Let every heart prepare him room, because his arrival requires a kind of inventory of the human heart. And that is, what lesser things are filling the space in my heart where Christ would come and make his home? And so it seems to me that the passage before us is an invitation to to make room for Jesus. What's the impact of the coming of Christ? Well, for Mary, it's a new life. For Joseph, it's a new response. For you and me, it's a constant comfort. We'll start with Mary, a new life. Verse 18 says this, Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Now, to be clear, the text doesn't even use the the ordinary word for birth. Instead, Matthew uses a word that means origin. In other words, the the origin of, of Jesus was like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from or by the Holy Spirit. We didn't even read all of the genealogy that starts Matthew chapter 1. But the first readers who read that would have immediately understood the point. Because Matthew traces the line of Jesus back to Abraham, and he goes down to David. And that list includes the likes of Judah, who has a baby from his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And then it includes in that line Rahab, the, the prostitute. And then from King David down to the exile in Babylon, that's a line that begins when David unites with another man's wife. And then progressively through those kings, they would have read it and said, oh, these are evil kings. In fact, they go into exile because the people of God are wicked and their leaders are wicked. And yet, strangely, Matthew traces that genealogy all the way down to Joseph. But then he acknowledges that the baby that was born to Mary is not by Joseph, her future husband. It is by the Holy Spirit. A couple of contextual points I think will help. First of all, betrothal in the first century of Palestine basically means we are married except for one big difference. And that is that the woman still lives at home with her parents until the husband is financially ready or ready otherwise to move his betrothed into his house. And when she moves in, then it's official. You and I are also used to engaged couples spending lots of time together, especially lots of alone time. It's not the way it would have been in 1st. Century Israel. So we shouldn't presume that Mary and Joseph had opportunity to talk. Mary likely did not even say a word to Joseph about the same vision that she had gotten from the angel Gabriel. Luke says in Luke chapter 1 that as soon as she saw that angel and heard that her relative Elizabeth had a baby also, then she went and spent time with Elizabeth for three months. In other words, she's gone from Nazareth. And when she comes back, She's beginning to show pregnant, which is why verses 18 and 20 both stress the point. No human being could be involved in this conception. And so that genealogy plus the phrase from or by the Holy Spirit makes the essential point. The Christ comes from the line of David, but he cannot be of the flesh of David. All the promises that were made to David's line pointed us to a king that was going to be a mighty deliverer, a warrior who would fight on behalf of God's people and destroy his enemies, a king who actually loved his people and loved God more than he loved himself. And so that list of Matthew chapter 1 confronts the real problem head on, human flesh cannot save you. That's why the king must be conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's called the the virginal conception. That's why for more than 2,000 years, Christians have confessed some form of this phrase, which is found in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary as if to confess god provides the savior that you need not the one that you would have thought you need first the christ is not corrupted by this long line of adam's sin he doesn't in flesh he doesn't inherit any of the fleshly ways of his father david and though he wears skin and bones like a man he is holy and divine And then secondly, what's happening in Mary physically is what must happen again and again and again spiritually until Christ returns. You see, if there is to be new life, if there is to be deep, lasting life, eternal life, it's always got to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you would have eternal life, Christ must be conceived in you by the Holy Spirit. And yet for thousands of years, mankind lived as if they could save themselves. People still live that way. And Matthew declares loud and clear, human flesh cannot save you. God's Spirit must come into your heart and conceive Christ in those dark places. And unless the Holy Spirit moves in you, there will be no life. Cosmically and spiritually, what happened is the Holy Spirit brought the eternal preexistent Christ into the life of the body of the Virgin Mary. And then every other time that eternal life or spiritual life would spring up in anyone else, it would happen because Jesus is planted there by the Holy Spirit. There's a creation theme for Matthew as well. Matthew remembers, like you do, that the Old Testament begins when the Holy Spirit, present at creation, comes down. Genesis 1, verse 2. When the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God comes down and He hovers over the dark places of the waters. And then here, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 and 20, the New Testament begins the same way. The Holy Spirit comes down and He conceives new life, a new creation. And so there's an impact for Mary as new life grows inside of her, as a new life is formed. It is not formed by the will of any man or woman, but by the will and the work of the Holy Spirit. She's going to make room for Jesus in her womb and in her heart. As the Holy Spirit conceived new life in you, as he planted Christ in In there. And then what is the impact on you? Will you, like Mary, continue to let the Christ grow? Why do we ask that question? Because John chapter 3, verse 6 says, That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Are you prepared to move? the furniture within your heart, to get rid of the old, to pray for God's help to show you the heart attitudes, the desires of your flesh that need to be taken and carried out of the heart to the curb so that the Holy Spirit conceived Christ would grow within you. Might be a good time of the year even as you take inventory of what you have in Christmas gifts, to take inventory of the clutter that dwells within your own heart so that you can make room for Jesus. For Mary, a new life. For Joseph, a new response. Verse 19 and 20 really brings us into the mind of of Joseph, discouraged with the thought that his bride has been unfaithful. He's not seen her for several months. He's been working Toward bringing the woman he loves home to be in his house, which is why one pastor said, Emotionally, Joseph feels gutted when he hears the news. And yet he's described in verse 19 as a just man, and some translations will say a righteous man. And it's a description which is bursting forth with meaning just. It is not right. For him to be thought of as the kind of man who would give heed to his passion to take bride, to take his bride before they are wed. Joseph knew he wasn't the father. He's cut deeply. He thought he knew Mary, but he'd given the evidence he just doesn't want to be a part of a marriage like that. He's also merciful. He doesn't want to expose Mary to public shame. And so in his mind, the best thing to do is to quietly divorce her. The text says he resolved to do that. Verse 20, But as as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not fear. You remember, don't you? This is, a, this is a dream. And so the phrase isn't meant to simply deal with the startling of the scene, but actually to the fears that have been welling up in the heart of Joseph since it was learned that his to-be bride is pregnant. And so the very phrase, do not fear, indicates that he does, somewhere deep down, really have a a desire to have Mary as his wife, but he genuinely is afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid to spend the rest of his life defending her honor against whispers and slander? Afraid to invest his whole heart providing and protecting a girl with seemingly questionable character? perhaps afraid to make room in his heart for this child, afraid to invest the rest of his life identified very closely with Mary's baby. For some, the arrival of Christ still evokes a feeling of fear. Some of you, like Joseph, may not feel that you are ready to welcome this child because you know it, it will lead to a major inconvenience. Not because you don't think he's real. Oh, oh, sure, like Joseph, you know he's real, but you're not sure that you want to create space for the Christ within your heart. And perhaps you're afraid that if you, if you give an inch, he will displace everything else. Or maybe you're afraid that if you welcome the Christ into your heart, it will do something To your reputation? And if you welcome him, I mean, really welcome him, isn't the inconvenience just going to be too great? Others of you know the Lord. It's not that you haven't made room for Christ, it's that there's a little bit of fear to make more room for the Christ. Are you afraid of what you'll lose? If you have to truly invest all of your heart in Jesus, it's not that you're resisting his presence, but you might be resisting his authority. And you may be afraid because there really are secret places in your heart where you have attitudes and actions where you don't feel like you want to surrender that territory to a growing Jesus. And for those who wrestle with those thoughts, the Bible says those are legitimate. If God plants Christ in your heart and you welcome him there, he really will grow. And other things really will be displaced. And you really will be identified with Christ. And it could impact your reputation. But as Mary and Joseph would tell you, wherever the Holy Spirit plants Jesus, he cannot be ignored. So it's really best to welcome him, to surrender to God's reign, and then learn to treasure the mystery of salvation. The angel goes on. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It seems so obvious to us. Nowadays, anybody knows what gender of the baby, the, the baby is that they're going to have. This is brand new information. In first century Palestine. And then, more than that, the angel says, You name him Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or, or Joshua. And it means the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. It's why the man who took over for Moses, who led God's people into the promised land, was a man named Joshua. Who's going to deliver us from the enemies that we're going to meet over there in the land of Canaan? Is it that guy who's been studying under Moses for the last 40 years? No, the Lord saves. He is the one who will deliver you. He is the one who will take you into the promised land, and he'll use that guy to do it. And so the point is clear. You, Joseph, are of the line of David. That's actually why I've chosen you. Do not cave to fear. Instead, believe my word, for the baby in Mary's womb is from God. It's implanted by the Holy Spirit. And so you do not be afraid to take her and take the child and adopt him as your own. And you name this child Jesus, because through him the Lord will save his people. The message is instantly comforting. How can you tell? Verses 24 and 25 tell us Joseph's new response. Instead of choosing hurt and fear, Joseph obeyed God's word and he took his wife, that is, he took her into his home and he kept her the virgin that she was. And then, as if embracing the authority of the son of David, he named him Jesus because the Lord saves. What a comfort. You remember, of course, there's a moment before he names him, before God's word came to Joseph, where everything logical in his mind convinced him to move in the opposite direction. In fact, he was going to embrace the hurt. He was going to make life choices entirely based on fear. And to be sure, all of the evidence leaned that way. How many of you live that way? resolve in your mind to to handle difficult life situations in a way that seems most logical to you. How easy it is for your logic, like Joseph's, to be guided more by hurt and fear than by God's Word. So this angelic pronouncement gives Joseph what only God's Word can give to any of us, and that is a new response. That's a, a changed mind. That is an opportunity to respond not out of hurt or fear, but out of truth and faith. You see, we have this account because Joseph told his story. He says, I was resolved to go in this direction, and it seemed most logical to me, but then God spoke into my fears. How does God speak into your fears today? Don't wait for an angelic voice. You have the Bible. You have God's Word written in your hands. And yet, Joseph's story reminds us that our decisions are difficult. And they're often different when they're guided by hurt and fear versus when they're guided by God's voice. Joseph's got a plan based on his own good sense. And God says, allow me to confront you with my Word. Sitting at my desk, I'm convicted by this. Because I really do trust my own good sense quite a lot. Some of you know that's a foolish endeavor for me. But I wonder how often my own good sense is is really guided and clouded by hurts and fears. Think about the decisions that you've made over the last couple of weeks, big or small. Are you led more by what you've resolved to do? And in your resolve, you are clouded by hurts and feelings of fear. Or are your decisions actually shaped by God's Word? And so my own weakness will illustrate the point. I actually open my Bible probably just about every day. Just about every day, I look at God's Word. Just about every day, I read it, and I think about it, and I pray over it. And yet, if that is for sermon prep, then it can become voc- vocational. It can become academic, which is why for several years, I have kept a prayer journal. It's not academic. It's, it's devotional. It's where I open my Bible. It's where I meditate on God's Word. It's where I write out my prayers. As I was writing this sermon, I realized, yeah, it's actually been several days since I've opened up my prayer journal, since I've actually approached the Lord with a devotional heart, and so I opened up my journal. The last entry was dated November 30th, 18 days ago today. Some of you here might say, oh, see, it's just as I thought. My pastor is not nearly as holy as I am. Two and a half weeks and the wretch has not devotionally been in God's Word. For the rest of you, perhaps you'll hear the point and apply it to your own life. You see, left without God's Word, Joseph would have made a different decision. Instructed by God's Word, Joseph is able to put away hurt and fear And obey the Master's voice. And some might say, in order to comfort me, well, Eric, of course, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's not as if you are are living your life without guidance, right? I know that's true. And yet I can't help but wonder what daily decisions I've made over the last two and a half weeks, which have been more guided by hurt and fear than guided by the voice of the God who speaks. I don't know the details of your story. I do know that hurt and fear can be really loud voices. And it's easy to underestimate their influence. And so to combat those voices and an over-reliance upon ordinary reasoning, you must pick up God's Word, and you must read it, and you must pray, and you must meditate make room for Jesus. For Mary, a new life. For Joseph, a new response. For you, a constant comfort. All the comfort in this passage for you and me is found in the words of the angel. The angel says, you call his name Jesus, verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. Did you notice that? Did you notice that the problem from which Jesus saves his people is their own personal sins? Because your sins are actually the major obstacle standing in the way of your relationship with God. And throughout the history of the world, every time men and women cried out to God, they always sought help for lesser things. In other words, we would happily settle for less from God, less from the Christ, than what he's willing to give. In fact, that's the reason that so many missed the Christ. They could not in, in any way envision a Messiah who didn't deliver his people from the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians before that. And so one scholar rightly said, a Messiah who did not save his people politically and economically must have struck a serious Jew as overly spiritual, But Jesus' work in the gospel is first to liberate his people from their own wickedness. You might say Jesus concentrates the fire of his ministry on the greatest problem you have. You have, and you have, and you have, and I have. The greatest problem we have is our own personal sin. My biggest problem is not my circumstances, My biggest problem is not the people who bother me in this life. It's my sin. And the very name Jesus tells me that it's true and God will fix it. It's deeply comforting because human flesh can't save me. Secondly, verse 23, Isaiah's prophecy, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I can't remember because I feel like I've preached through this text before. I don't know if I've ever told you that the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, and its original meaning to King Ahaz was that that the Lord was willing to come to his people, and when he comes, he was going to bless them. But if they refuse to receive him when he comes, it's not that he's going to go away. He's, in fact, still present, but he'll be present to judge. So here's a comfort. Even at the birth of Christ, there's this promise that God will come near to sinners, to those who embrace his coming. He says, I've actually arrived to bless you. I wonder if you deeply believe that his presence is here to bless you. Even if you feel uncertain about your future, even if you do not like your circumstances at present, even if you recognize that your failures keep mounting and you feel more and more isolated and alone, even if it seems that everyone else has passed you by and you're stuck, do you believe that in Christ God came near and he remains near in order to bless you? One of the key themes that Matthew speaks of is the presence of God for his children. That's why he opens the gospel account by reminding us of the angel's words, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's why he closes the same gospel with these words from the mouth of the Savior. Matthew 28, verse 20. Look, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's a constant comfort. God saves his people from their sins. And he remains with you forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the richness of this passage, for Christ's coming in his presence. We ask that through the ministry and help of your word and your spirit, that you would teach us to make room and more room for the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.